Thank you all for joining us. This is from the newsroom, uh, the Holland Sentinel staff podcast. We've taken a little bit of a hiatus thanks to the COVID-19 slash coronavirus pandemic. But we're back. We're back uh, trying to get a podcast as best as we can. Everybody's working from home. Uh, let's do introductions. Uh, uh, I'm Brian Vernellis. I'm digital director at the Holland Sentinel. Uh, I'm joined by editor Sarah Leach. Hello. Hey, Sarah. And on the other side, we have Arpan Lobo, our government reporter. Hey, Brian. Hey, Arpan. Uh, I thought we would get together. Actually, Arpan thought we would get together. Uh, this was his idea. Uh, he's been working on a story uh, about a particular statue in Allendale. Uh, and it's just, it's uh, outside the township government office. Is that what you said, Arpan? Right. It's it's a it's across, there's a, there's a township offices, and then there's like a patch of green grass, and then there's this little park with these statues. So, yeah, why don't you uh, <laughs> let people know what these statues are all about. In Allendale, um, that's where Grand Valley State University is located. It's probably what the city or the township's best known for. But close to the government offices, there's a memorial garden where a series of statues uh, are located. And each of these statues uh, signifies one of the wars that uh, the U.S. has has fought in, um, all the way back to the Revolutionary War. And the last one uh, is the Gulf Conflict um, in the early 90s. Uh, This garden was dedicated in the late 90s, 1998 uh, to be exact. Um, But... The reason why it's kind of come up in the news now, uh, one of the statues, the Civil War uh, commemoration statue, it's a bit different from the other statues. All the other statues have a singular soldier or singular person there to kind of uh, memorialize uh, those who fought in those wars. But the Civil War statue is a bit different in the sense that it has two soldiers back to back. One soldier is a Union soldier, uh, the northern side that fought um, the Confederate states, the southern side. Who, And in between those two soldiers, there's a small child that's supposed to be a slave. Um, it's very small uh, compared to the two statues. The two statues tower above it. And the slave child is holding a tablet that says freedom to the slaves or free the slaves, something along that along those lines. And this has kind of come up in the news recently. A civil rights group, the Michigan Association of Civil Rights Activists, have asked for the Civil War statue to be removed because they find it offensive. Um, The fact that Confederate iconography is present in Allendale is something that they have argued shouldn't be uh, the case. And it's something that until recently, I don't think the statue had uh, drawn much attention, but in light of the mass protests and movements going on across the country uh, calling for racial justice and racial equity, uh, this is something that's kind of drawn some ire. You mentioned this story, uh, and I think a couple other outlets picked up on it. It, The fact that um, this is a fairly recent statue as well, isn't it? Right. The dedication was 1998, July 5th, so right after Independence Day of 98. The uh, garden as a whole was uh, dedicated. And if you go to the garden, it's right off of 68th and Lake Michigan, if you know the area. It's not that hard to find. Um, The garden, it has older donors and everybody uh, 
that kind of contributed to the cause. One of the statues was given by Huntington Bank, even. Uh, This particular statue was given by three just individuals. Um, And, you know, the the reason it's kind of drawn some uh, ire, as you said, it's pretty recent. I was able to speak to Scott Stabler, who's a professor of history at GVSU, and he uh, specializes in Civil War history. And he was telling me, you know, 1998 is extremely late for any (laughs) Civil War statue or even just or any Confederate iconography to be erected in the first place. Uh, Most Civil War memorials and Confederate, well, most Civil War memorials, including Confederate uh, symbols, were either brought up during the Jim Crow era or in response to the civil rights movements of the 1960s. And so for this to come up in 1998, that's pretty, you know, but by comparison, it's pretty recent. Well, and the statue seems to be a conflict of history itself, because it seems to imply that uh, if that slave is between the two soldiers, you know, is it implying that they were both fighting for the same cause or... um, since they're standing back to back, are they supposed to be opposed to one opposed to one another? Um, right. The, the statue itself makes that unclear, um, and that's one of the things that Stabler kind of immediately ripped. And he said, you know, the one of the kind of revisionist nostalgic views of the Confederacy was that they were fighting for states' rights. In reality, I guess you could say they were fighting for states' rights, but it was states' rights. To own slaves, or right. for people to own slaves. That was the main cause of the Civil War. It didn't have anything else. To, it, it didn't have anything else to do with any other major reasons. That was the biggest reason. If you go back and look at the constitutions of the Confederate States, most of them ex, uh, explicitly mention slavery as a reason, and some of them even mention the fact that they believe that the white man was superior to. Um, to, to the uh, a black man and woman. It, w- it was something that, as we've kind of gone further away from it, it, this nostalgic view of it kind of glosses over. And that wasn't the case. Stabler pointed that out to me as something that, you know, he said it's, it was pretty rare and it is pretty explicitly a racist symbol. Right. Um, one thing he said to me is, you know, we say, oh, Lincoln freed the slaves, or the Union freed the slaves, or the 13th Amendment freed the slaves. He said, no, the slaves freed the slaves. It wasn't their feet freed them. They were the ones that had to get up and leave uh, even after the war ended. So it's something where the statue really kind of takes away the volition from uh, the, the you know enslaved people uh, during the Civil War era. So that's something that he kind of pointed out as being, you know, he called it racist straight up. So he's basically saying that, um, that, it, that it's... Uh kind of elevating the, the soldiers, the, the government's role in, in freeing the slaves and saying that they were helpless victims that they were basically the saviors of. And, right. and, and that there's also, I, 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 you know, personally, I, I haven't gone to see the statue, but I've seen a picture of it, to keep the, the Confederate and the Union soldiers, even if you don't really understand, like, with the back-to-back, you know, if they were fighting together or uh, opposed, to elevate them to the same status, I think, is a little bit questionable. Wouldn't you agree with that? I mean, considering what the context of that war was. 
Right. That was something he pointed out as well. And he, he did say, you know, most of those Confederate soldiers, not all, but most like the Union, they were drafted. It wasn't something they signed up to go to war. Um, it was something where, you know, people lived in a, men lived in a town, young men lived in a town. And a general came and kind of, you know, rounded them up and said, okay, we're going to fight. You know, it wasn't as if every Confederate soldier uh, had that same uh, end goal, but, you know, they were fighting for a cause. And uh, to kind of hold them in that regard, especially, you know, in a northern state like Michigan, you know, West Michigan, which um, you can go around the state and you'll find. Uh, cemeteries and memorials to Union soldiers where Union soldiers are buried, their remains are. Um, and to kind of signify a Confederate soldier like that is, uh, he, he called it off-putting or kind of, uh, not, he didn't say offensive, but he said it's kind of, you know, goes against, yeah, it goes against, you know, the true history of the war. <laughs> Did he mention if that's the only statue that portrays a Confederate uh, soldier in the state or honors a Confederate member uh we didn't speak about any other specific statues but one thing he did point out to me um in lowell there used to be a robert e lee uh celebration boat it was kind of like a steamboat one of those type things get out and they, <laughs> and they used to show um minstrel minstrel shows on the boat um, which is you know why, it, are, why are we seeing this in the north I mean, we're, you can't get much north than Michigan. You're in Canada after Michigan. So why do you, did, was there, do, do you have any idea as to like maybe where some of this comes from? Because I think that we all sort of knew that this was, that it existed, but obviously the Black Lives Matter movement put much more emphasis on having these conversations about this, this, um, you know, the, these kinds of, uh, you know, icons that, that were, that have been erected in recent years. Why do you think that these exist in the North? Well, uh, a lot of it is that kind of nostalgia um, factor, and it's kind of like this revisionist uh, rectification of history when that that wasn't really the case. Um, It's something to where... And now this uh, particular statue by itself wasn't, you know, it's it's not one of one, it's one of nine uh, there, but it's the the kind of symbol there that is off-putting to people. Um, and in terms of why we see these symbols so far up north, one of the things he mentioned to me, um, he, he said it's, it really was something that kind of started during the Jim Crow movement. And while, you know, in history, in your grade school, you may be taught that, oh, the northern, you know, they fought to free the slaves. And yes, that's true. But it's not as if racism did not exist uh, up uh, in the northern states. And it's something you can still see. It's... Uh, kind of impact with with, with uh, redlining policies and, uh, and, you know, kind of de facto segregation throughout the country, even in states that were part of the union during the time. Mm-hmm. Sarah, when you, uh, you mentioned the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, I was at the uh, rally that was local uh, two weekends ago. Um, you know, I think Supporters were hoping for a couple hundred. Uh, 3,000 people showed up. Um, <laughs> this is not like... I, I don't think this is like the previous movement when Black Lives Matter, uh, the first iteration. Um, or even just, uh, what was that, 2014 when we saw several yeah, um, young black men yeah. being shot 
So, yeah. What do you think it is about this time that uh, is really resonating with people? Well, I think, I mean, we kind of had a perfect storm of uh, existing stress and anxiety in the United States. We were in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, A lot of people were being forced uh, into some sort of quarantine or or lockdown order in, um, in all of the 50 states in some capacity. I think people were very frustrated. Unemployment's at an all-time high. That definitely impacts quality of life and happiness levels. And I think um, there's a lot of divisive politics in the in the, the past. I would say probably four to five years. Um, a lot of people want to blame the Trump administration for when it started. That, that that's where we can harken back to. I think that it started before that. I think that that. Trump's election came out of some of the divisiveness that was happening in America. Um, So I think that some of those factors where people are so, um, they're stressed, they're unhappy for a lot of reasons. And I think that when this happened, I think it was just that one last thing, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back where they were just like, you know, we're we're mad as hell and we're not going to take it anymore. And I think that that really motivated a lot of people and they were able to really kind of uh, crystallize some sort of, uh, you know, channel to, to, to put their passion into to, to finally get this addressed. And I think adding on to that, the, the manner that uh, George Floyd's death in particular was captured on camera. Yeah, and um, he was killed in a way where there was really no... Um, gray area. It there was no... It was, it was a... Yeah, it was just so obvious that, you know, he, he was laying down. He was he was not a danger to himself or others. He had handcuffs on. He was on his stomach. And he literally was just killed. And so I think that it was just indefendable. And I, I think these reactions that are coming out of communities and, and having gone to... Uh, I've, went, I've gone to protests in my hometown on the east side of the state. I've attended a protest in Grand Rapids, I uh, was taking photos there, and it, it's not, it, it's a very multicultural, kind of multi-generational um, groups of people that are coming to these. It's not as if it's just one group of people. It's, it's kind of a, you know, very, uh, it's a co- coalition of kind of protests, almost, and it's something where I think that you're right, in 2014, uh, during the Ferguson um, protest, we didn't see this kind of national and even international support. Uh, it's something that's relatively new. Right. That did surprise me uh, at Holland's uh, protest was the range of people, um, you know, going from families up to 80-year-olds. You know, when I saw couples in their 80s, 70s and 80s at this, uh, that that's when it really kind of... Uh, I think the message hammered home for me that this is not something that, um, you know, is strictly um, people of color can rally around. This is something that's affecting the entire United States. And particularly in, in Holland, to see that kind of support, I thought was really eye-opening. Yeah, I think that we we hear about racism in Holland. Um, it does exist. Um it doesn't really get addressed head on in a lot of, you know, there, there are like situations that, that crop up um, that tangentially touch on it occasionally. I think that one of the reasons why we saw continuing momentum after the first like week or so is frankly because of the 
response within Minneapolis where this happened, and it took a, quite a long time to see any charges being brought against the officers, which caused a great deal of frustration with everyone. Um, and then you also had state and federal officials who were not necessarily eager to get involved, or they were maybe flat out refusing to, to acknowledge that this was something that was that shouldn't have happened and should should be addressed. And I think that that just kind of, um, it, it just touched on like a, like a deeper angst um, across a lot of different age levels that, you know, that the genders and the races. Um, so I think it's something that everybody can kind of generally get behind. Now, whether or not all of these people are, are really in on, on trying to make real substantive change, I'm not sure that that is going to be the case, but it is it is heartening to see that they can all agree on something because we rarely see that in, yeah. in this day and age. Yeah. Well, uh, and there are, there are, there is still an opposition and it's kind of why we see, um, some, uh, Confederate symbols being kind of, uh, flown, uh, flags and, you know, bumper stickers. You'll see typically at every, I don't know if this happened in Holland, but when I was in Grand Rapids, uh, a few weeks ago, there weren't pe- people didn't get out of their cars, but there were cars. Uh, there was one Jeep. Someone drove by Rosa Park Circle in a Jeep with um, the uh, Confederate, the, you know, the stars and bars, um, which that flag in particular is kind of misconceived a lot of times because a lot of people think that's the kind of uh, Confederate flag. It, it was their, it, it was their flag. It was their battle flag. Their actual flag um, much more resembled. Uh, it was, pretty close to the U.S. flag at the time. Hmm. And that's kind of where this Confederate flag came from is because on the field they couldn't distinguish um, which side was which, you know, because of just so much smoke and kind of chaos. Um, So that's where that flag came from. And it's something you see um, in opposition to, or or in opposition to these movements, um, because that is a symbol. um, People will try and say, oh, I don't mean this to, you know, display white supremacy or anything like that, but that's what that symbol means, you know. That the re, that was what they were fighting for. for yeah, yeah. The, you know, they were fighting to own slaves, and, you know, the slaves at the time were black people. Right. Um, that was what they fought for, and this kind of revisionist history is like, oh, it's, it's you know, heritage, not hate. I think, you know, that, that kind of just glosses over, you know, what we know uh, the reality is where. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it essentially is a heritage of hate, <laughs> right? And it's something where you know, especially in, in Michigan, when you see it, when there were people from Michigan who died fighting against that flag, it, it's always a little, um, you know, offsetting. When I was a reporter in South Dakota uh, a few years ago, uh, I remember distinctly. I, I was leaving the city hall uh, after covering a meeting. And one of the cars in the parking lot had a flag hanging off of its bumper or off of a spoiler or something hanging off the back. And uh, it was like a mishmash flag. It was like half U.S. flag. And then the other half was the Confederate flag, stars and bars. And it's like, hello, like literally you can't, that's, you know, the antithesis of what that entire flag was about. That flag was about seceding from the U.S. so that people could own slaves. To put that, you know, next to the American flag, you know, of which that, you know, the, the Confederate States committed treason against, it just seems as if people aren't truly acknowledging history and instead they want to acknowledge, you know, the underlying, you know, 
history behind that flag, and that flag is a history of white supremacy. I, okay, so I think that it's interesting that when we see these big cultural shifts, um, they tend to happen kind of unexpectedly and um, quite swiftly. And we're seeing that a little bit in terms of the, the LGBTQ advancements, which have been numerous in the, in the past several years, which I don't think that if you were to go back 10 years, I don't think that anybody would have expected. Um, we also saw a little bit of a, of a pushback in five years ago about symbols that were on um, state owned or county owned or municipal owned land that depicted um, biblical iconography, mm-hmm. like, crosses um there was a plaque in, a, in one of the ottawa county parks that had a bible verse that got taken down and put back and it was this kind of political football i think it's very interesting when we see these kinds of movements regardless of whatever the topic is that symbols tend to um undoubtedly come into the conversation where we look at things in a new way to and really have like a conversation about whether or not they are they are acceptable or are they no longer acceptable like things that you wouldn't even think about unless it was in the context of whatever that cultural shift is and i think that it's important to have those conversations because sometimes you know people get very defensive about this if some, if a plaque has been standing for 50 years and and the, you know they've always they've, it's been there every time that they go to this park and they want to see it and it's just really sad to see it go because it's just nostalgia um, I think that people kind of need to process that reaction a little bit and kind of get over that part and, and really be, join the conversation because until we actually realistically talk about some of these things that have to do with race, um, that have to do with religion, where are the boundaries? Where, what are we comfortable with as a, as a city, as a, as a county, as a state, as a country? I think it's really important that, that we should all be participating in that discussion regardless of how it comes about. Right, and and I'm glad you brought up the discussion thing because that's that's one thing that the Allendale Township staff has actually kind of asked for. Uh, they're holding a, a meeting, a regular board meeting on Monday the 22nd, and their supervisor hasn't, you know, because he's been kind of bombarded with media requests throughout this uh, kind of saga. And the one thing he keeps saying is like, "Well, we encourage residents to come to our uh, board meeting on on Monday and talk to us about what they've done." Um, in the story, you know, I'm putting together on, on the kind of historical angle of it, you know, I was going to include that, you know, he did tell uh, our partners over at Wood TV, he did t- tell, you know, email me if you have concerns. Um, and so that's something to where is if, if people, you know, have objections with a something that's on public property, they can make their voices heard. These kinds of discussions are always going to be painful because everyone has different investment in, in whatever their perspective was before the change happened. And I think that this, it's, it's a, it's a sensitive issue. And I think that people need to give it a little bit of space and breathing room in order to have those discussions like Allendale is trying to do. Um, because it's not something where you just like you show up for for a meeting and you share some thoughts and then it, it's over. It's it's a continuing conversation because no one's going to understand the perspective of African Americans in the United States in just a couple of conversations. Like it's it's a it's way yeah. way more than that. Like I would never understand what you know an immigrant's perspective is who who emigrates to to the United States. 
no one's, you know, they're not going to understand my perspective. So I think that we need to give some breathing room to some of these conversations and to kind of manage through the defensive emotions that we tend to have when it's something that we don't like or that we're not comfortable with. I also think, you know, for a lot of people, if they're unsure of what they can do um, or if they're unsure of what they're doing is offensive or insensitive to people, they can just listen. I mean, that's, yeah. that's all it kind of uh, takes, you know. You might be doing something. We all have implicit biases, every single one of us. Um, right, right. That's a, yes, that's a great, you know, that's a good thing to point out that we go through training for that kind of thing because that's a part of the journalistic craft is trying to manage through our own implicit biases because everyone is human and everyone has them. Right, and, and if, people, if, if people can manage to, you know, listen a little bit more, kind of become more empathetic. I think that's something that's been lost on people is the, the ability to kind of put themselves in another person's shoes. By being able to listen um, to these kind of conversations and engaging in these conversations without immediately jumping to the defensive, mm-hmm. I think a lot of progress could be made there. Um, you know, there's it's kind of become a tired slogan. You'll see it from like corporate branding and, you know, from government officials. Oh, we hear you. We listen. Well, you know, that doesn't mean I'm ready to, you know, hear you yet. I'm, I still have stuff to say. Right. Okay, and I'm going to need you to continue to listen, you know. So it, it'll be something that as we go forward, this isn't going to be, you know, uh, you, you can't flip a switch to undo 400 years of this, this nation's history. It's right. It's something that's going to take a long time. Um, and uh, people that are continuing to fight for these progress are going to have to continue to fight. It's something that... Um, if people want to make the difference and want to be seen as allies, they're going to have to listen and they're going to have to kind of, you know, play their own roles in these kind of movements. Yeah, and the people advocating for change also have to understand that they're also not going to be able to unring the bell, you know, with 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 a couple, you know, taking down a couple of statues. Um, they're, they have to expect that they're going to meet some resistance and they're going to have to have the tenacity and the patients to work through some of the expected reactions that they're going to get from something that until this point was culturally acceptable. So, you know, I, I, I really hope that people on both sides are willing to give the other a little bit of wiggle room in order to kind of catch their breath a little bit and then keep moving forward together. I agree. And on that note, I think we'll wrap it up. Any final words? I would just say that, uh, you know, when we have these conversations, and I, you know, kind of take off my reporter hat sometimes during these podcasts because I, you know, human and I have thoughts. But um, <laughs> as we go through these, you know, I would just say, like, the, the lasting point is, you know, anytime you see kind of an outcry like we've seen, uh, protests, and even, even the riots that have gone on in some cities, th- this doesn't just happen for no reason. There is pain and there is anger, you know, behind all of these. And if your first response is to immediately shun these because you don't like when people kind of get up in mass like this, you know, that, that, that's something, you know, that needs to be, uh, that can't be your first response. You know, you have to be able to figure out why, you know, why are these people reacting like this? Then you can start learning. If your first response is to immediately condemn this, you won't make any progress. I think that's important to note uh, when you kind of see these things. Cause in a lot of places, these, you know, movements haven't happened before so it's something where um you know it's just once again bringing up that empathy if you have that i think you'll have a lot 
you'll have a much easier time uh, kind of navigating your way through this important uh, time. Great point. Thank you very much, RPM. What a great way to close this. Uh, so on, fa- on behalf of RPM Lobo, I'm Sarah Leach, I'm Brian Bernals. Thank you all for joining us, and we hope to see you next time on From the Newsroom.